Hello and welcome to the Top Story, a podcast with the headlines of the day from our correspondents around the world. I'm Do Hongyu. Coming up in this edition, Hamas says it's ready for talks with Israel for another ceasefire in Gaza as the humanitarian disaster worsens. Incumbent Egyptian President Abdel Fattah al-Sisi is set to secure his third presidential term. And the U.S. Federal Reserve has left interest rates unchanged at a 22-year high. We start from the Middle East. The leader of Hamas has made clear that they're ready for talks with Israel for another ceasefire in Gaza. Ismail Haniyeh says Hamas welcomes the United Nations General Assembly resolution demanding an immediate truce. He's also urging for more international pressure to halt Israeli attacks on the coastal enclave. However, Israel says it'll continue fighting in Gaza with or without international support. Meanwhile, rain has caused flooding in parts of Gaza, adding to the humanitarian disaster the people are already suffering. Associated Press correspondent Philip Crowther reports. Well, it was one of the deadliest days since Israel started its military campaign in Gaza, a deadly ambush in a dense urban neighborhood in northern Gaza, in precisely the part of the Gaza Strip that Defense Minister Yoav Gallant had previously said only had pockets of resistance. Nine Israeli soldiers lost their lives, ten altogether in one day alone in Gaza. The dire humanitarian situation got worse with heavy rainfall, particularly in the southern Gaza Strip. That led to flooding in some of the uh, tent camps that are now in the south, because that is precisely where the Israeli military told civilians to go to and where they, in theory at least, should be safe. Israel is not getting any closer to a ceasefire. It's uh, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu saying uh, nothing will stop us and we are continuing until the end. International pressure comes from, for example, that vote in the UN General Assembly, an emphatic vote for that resolution for an immediate humanitarian ceasefire. That was Philip Crowther with the Associated Press. Gaza's 2.3 million residents are still grappling with water shortages amid Israel's blockade. Nor Harrison spoke with some residents on how they're getting by. Clean water, essential for life, is now lacking in Gaza after Israeli Defense Minister Yuav Gallant ordered a full siege on the Strip on October 9th. During the offensive, Gaza's sanitation infrastructure and most of its water wells have been destroyed. That's pushed Palestinians to find an alternative source from the sea. There's no water at all. We're forced to bottle seawater and use it daily, and also for the toilet. As you can see, they have demolished our homes. Even food and drinking water cannot be found. We're truly in the midst of a great suffering. Diana Abul Arraj comes to the shores of Deir el-Balah every day with her friends to bottle some seawater for her family, not only for washing, but also to drink, despite the health danger that poses. We do not have water because of the war. We come here to drink seawater even though it's unhealthy, but we need water whatever its source. We demand that they stop the war and for everything to return to how it was. Other Gazans find a rescue refugee on the beach, away from the bombings inside the cities. All of us here have nowhere to go but to the sea. 
There is no other place to go because the bombing is everywhere, even here on the seashore. The bombing followed us. A family was bombed and killed while they were just sitting here on the beach. Unfortunately, even the sea has become dangerous, but we have no other place. Since 2007, this coastal enclave has endured an air, land and sea blockade imposed by Israel, severely limiting Gaza's access to basic goods and resources. Now, this total blockade is leaving the entire population in a critical shortage of the most basic resources of all, water. That was Noor Harazin reporting on the water shortages amid fighting in Gaza. Turning to Africa, early figures from ballot counting in Egypt's presidential election indicate incumbent President Abdel Fattah al-Sisi has secured enough votes for a third term. Adola Mohuri has been following the proceedings. The window for voting stretched for three days. Until the very last minute, some polling stations were still seeing long lines of voters waiting to cast their ballot. Many people felt proud to be able to exercise their right. I didn't have time to come earlier to vote, but I wanted to vote. So I took the opportunity when my kids had sports training and left them to come here. I think it's important for the country that we vote. There is no stability in the countries around us. They have wars. They couldn't hold a presidential election, and that made me want to participate. The election authorities said that by midday on Monday, the turnout had reached 45%, a larger figure compared to the last presidential election in 2018. Meanwhile, the authorities and several domestic monitoring organizations said they didn't witness any significant violations to the voting procedures. There was a big turnout in many of the polling stations that I saw. All voting procedures were in order. We talked to the monitors inside the stations as well to see if they needed to report anything. Violations were not significant. They were mostly related to some observers who were monitoring on behalf of the other candidates. Some of them did not even have the required documents to be present on the polling stations. Other than that, the process was well organized. The entire voting process was manual. Once a polling station was closed, election officials moved to a local hub to add up the results of each district. Results coming out from several polling stations overnight had support for President Abdel Fattah Sisi ranging between 80 to 95 percent. As expected, the initial results at this ballot station indicates a landslide victory for President Abdel Fattah al-Sisi. However, the official result is still to be announced on December 18. That was Adol al-Mahouri on the presidential election in Egypt. In Nigeria, gunmen have killed four soldiers and kidnapped two South Koreans in the country's oil-rich Niger Delta region. This is the latest in a series of such incidents in the area. Tessam Akende reports. Army spokesperson Jonathan Anjima while confirming the incident in a statement says the gunmen also killed two drivers. The victims were traveling from River State to neighboring Bayoso states when they were ambushed. The South Koreans worked for an engineering company and were being escorted by the Nigerian soldiers. According to the non-governmental organization, partnership initiatives in the Niger Delta there has been a resurgence of kidnappings for ransom in the region, with travelers being targeted especially. It has two men were abducted in March, while a dozen others were kidnapped in May in the region. Military authorities have acknowledged the supreme sacrifice paid by the soldiers and assured that efforts are ongoing to track down the perpetrators and ensure the South Koreans are released. 
They say the armed forces will not relent until all forms of criminality such as kidnappings for ransom, oil theft and pipeline vandalism are eliminated. That was Tessa McKenday reporting. Now we move on to North America. The U.S. Federal Reserve has left interest rates unchanged at a 22-year high of 5.25 to 5.5 percent as inflation continues to cool, signaling an end to its rate hike cycle and possible rate cuts next year. Owen Fekulov has more. An end-of-year gift for U.S. consumers heading off for the holidays. The U.S. Central Bank holding its benchmark interest rate at the same level since July. At up to 5.5%, that benchmark interest rate is the highest for nearly 20 years. But it's a sign that the Federal Reserve's inflation battle is largely over. Chair Jerome Powell began hiking that rate when inflation ran out of control after the worst of the COVID-19 pandemic. Raising that rate traditionally makes credit more expensive and is a way of driving down inflation. And at just over 3%, core inflation is now near the 2% target the Fed seeks for a stable economy. But the average 30-year U.S. mortgage is now at 7%. But consider that rent is 6.5% higher than a year ago, with transportation costs 10% higher. So the Fed is concerned about pockets of stubborn inflation in the economy, even if the cost of food and fuel have dropped substantially. Now economists are wondering if the Fed feels confident enough to cut that rate so that prospective homeowners currently priced out of the market have a shot at getting on the housing ladder. And although economic growth is slowing, both consumer spending and the labor markets are strong, if not quite flying. That was Owen Fairclough on the latest interest rates decision in the U.S. Finally, back to the Middle East, the COP28 climate conference has wrapped up in Dubai. Over 200 countries approved a final declaration following heated negotiations that extended 24 hours beyond an initial deadline. Landmark deals over the two-week conference are expected to pave the way for climate action finance at a long-delayed plan for energy transition from fossil fuels. Yasser Hakim reports from Dubai. The critical fossil fuel phase-out issue had taken center stage throughout the conference. As the deadline approached, the first draft on Monday night caused quite a stir, after sensationally omitting that very issue from the final text. Dozens of countries described the omission as unacceptable, and demonstrations by activists at the site went up a couple of notches. But China was among the countries to intervene and help achieve the necessary breakthrough. Its special envoy said the agreement was something the U.S. and China had been working towards in previous climate meetings. Here in Dubai, we have already fulfilled part of what we agreed in Sunnyland, which is working together to make a successful COP28. When negotiations were getting stuck, we worked together and provided joint proposals to unlock the deadlock in negotiations and facilitate it for the success of the COP. Chinese envoy Xi Xuanhua's American counterpart John Kerry highlighted the importance of cooperation with China at the climate conference. We both hope and, and uh, are pleased that we think our joint work not only advanced our respective national efforts, but also reflected at the COP in many ways throughout the creating of momentum and providing substantive ideas. According to the final document, the term phase out has been replaced with transitioning away from fossil fuels. 
and it was still accepted by nations that initially didn't want a change of language. Amongst other clauses, the document for the first time puts emphasis on speeding up mitigation and adaptation finance, doubling energy efficiency, and tripling renewable energy production levels. This has been welcomed by developing nations, including those in Africa. The summit has been described by its president as an historic event, one of many firsts. But as delegates celebrate this milestone, many have warned that what's coming up is more important. For this conference here to be really successful, the pledges have to be implemented. That was Yasser Hakim on the outcome of the COP28 climate conference. Before we go, here's a recap of today's top stories. Hamas says it's ready for talks with Israel for another ceasefire in Gaza as the humanitarian disaster worsens. Incumbent Egyptian President Abdel Fattah al-Sisi is set to secure his third presidential term. And the U.S. Federal Reserve has left interest rates unchanged at a 22-year high. That's it for this edition of The Top Story, a podcast that brings you world headlines every weekday. For more news in politics, business, sports, and culture, you can subscribe to the Beijing Hour, a one-hour podcast news magazine program. We welcome and appreciate all ratings and reviews. I'm Do Hongyi. Thank you for listening.